Hi, and welcome to the Willow Ridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. fix that and try to get you all the announcements at the end of the service. There you go. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 4 with me this morning. I'm excited to be here with you as usual today. You know, over the last uh, week, we were hoping for a lot of uh, uh, calmness maybe for 2021 as it rang in, and 2021 is a little more chaotic maybe than we'd hoped for that we've seen. But I think today, as I wrote in this morning, and as, as we're going through stuff within our family, just as you're going through stuff within your family, just as we're going through stuff together as a, as a body of people together, it's just good to get away and to be reminded. And I really hope that this morning, that this is what we can really look at in, in Luke chapter 4. For, for those of us who, who know Jesus, we're, we're not going to be, I don't think you're going to find anything new this morning. I don't think there's going to be that, that piece of truth that jumps out that you've, that you've never heard before as we, as we look at the temptation of Christ and we see his victory in that. But what I hope we can find is the reminder of the victory that for all of us who are found in Christ, we can cling to and that we know. And I want to say this, if you're, if you're here this morning, whether you're, you're invited and so you came with friends or, or family or, or whether you just showed up here or whether you're jumping in on, on line with us and, and you don't know who Jesus is, I, I want to just say to you that what you will see today, what we will look at in, in, in Scripture, that you'll be able to see his divinity and his humanity and in the perfection of Christ and our call to follow him. That's my, my hope for us that we can get our eyes off of ourselves, that we can get our eyes off of the world, and that we can sincerely cling to Jesus. When, when Luke writes the, 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 the gospel of Luke and he records Acts, he, he writes it uh, in that moment and he addresses it to a person. If you were here for our Christmas series, we talked a little bit about this as we looked at the first several chapters of Luke, and he writes it to his friend Theophilus. And he writes to Theophilus with a hope that Theophilus, of those things that, that he has heard about Jesus, that he's been taught about Jesus, that reading the gospel will, will confirm, it will solidify, it'll help mature those things in, in Theophilus as he moves forward. And so what you and I are, what we're going to do over the course of, of this semester as we look forward, believe it or not, into summertime, which because we're in South Carolina could literally be here tomorrow, Right? That's what we're going to work toward. We're going we're to work through the book of Luke. We're not going to read every verse. We're going to kind of pick up some of the highlights as, as we move through. But in doing that, that, that we can see, that we can know, that we can understand. And for some of us, our, our prayer, my prayer for you, is that you may take that first step in trusting, trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. But for so many of us, what we will find is the opportunity, right, to, to, to mature in him. 
him, to, to trust, to, to grow, and to see that relationship strengthen with him. And so if you would, would join me, let's begin reading Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. In, in Luke chapter 4, in this temptation of Christ, what we will see is this uh, divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. We're going to see what, what he is able to overcome in perfection as the divine Son of God being sent by the Father, being filled by the Spirit. But what we will also see in what you and I will be able to relate to in some essence is the humanity of Christ, that God, fully God's stepped out of heaven, took on form of a man, and in his perfect obedience did what God called him to, right? In the first two verses, we, we see, as, as Luke records, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit, right? This, this conveys to us the, the divinity of, of Christ, the power in which Jesus lives his life, the power in which he will walk on water, the power in which he will call the blind to see and the deaf to hear, the power in which Jesus will say, call Lazarus to life, the, the power in which he will overcome the grave is found fully, not in his human ability that he has, but in his divine nature that he is fully God. And so as Jesus goes into the desert to face the temptations of the devil, what we know is that he's being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God fully in doing this, but he's also, Scripture tells us, led there, that he's being led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. Now, now here's what this can, can gain from, from us in this, okay? God is not uh, out of control in this moment. God is not aware of what is going on. God is not knowledgeable about what is taking place. That Jesus, being fully empowered by the Spirit, is being led into the desert for a moment of time with the devil. This is God's will. This is God's plan. And what God is going to do in this is going to be remarkable here in the moment, and for all of eternity as we see the victory that Christ has. And so just for a, a brief moment, what I want to gain us on, and for, for some of us that feel like we've been in the desert ourselves, that feel like that we're wandering through this, that feel like we're facing the temptations of life and shaking our fists, wondering why we are there and where is God in this moment. As God guided Jesus into the desert for a moment like this, maybe God is guiding us into the desert for our moment like this. So that we can experience and so that we can walk through and that we can gain here in this moment. What we see in these first two verses is that Jesus, as he goes under the full authority and the leading of God, that the devil will be there to tempt Christ. And this is going to be a little bit different for us. The temptations that, that you and I face are found within our sin struggles, right? So if you struggle with greed, guess how you're probably going to be tempted? Through greed, 
If you struggle with lust, look how you're probably gonna be tempted with lust. Right, like, so what happens within us, the sins that we struggle with oftentimes are the areas within our life where we find ourselves most vulnerable, which is where Satan is going to tempt us. But that's not what we see here with Christ. Because he is fully divine, he is perfect, and he doesn't have sin struggles. He has humanity that we'll talk about here and look at in a second, but Jesus doesn't have sin struggles. So where Satan is going to attack him is in his fulfillment of the mission of God. You see, for Satan, what Satan despises more than anything else is not you and I. For, for him, we are simply pawns. What he despises more than anything else is the mission of God. And so when he attacks you and when he attacks me, what he wants to draw us away from is the fulfillment in our lives for the mission and the glory of God. That is his goal. That is the battle that he faces. And so for Jesus... His temptation is not due to some internal sin struggle like you and I wrestle with. But instead, what Satan is going to attack is the mission of God. And what we're going to see, and this is kind of a side note, and I read about this this week, but we don't have the time to, to go through it, but, but I really would, would challenge you maybe to look back at, at Genesis 3, right? The, the fall of man at, at creation and the fall of Adam and Eve and sin being introduced into the world. What we're going to see in this, right, what was, what was defeated and what failed in the garden, we're going to see the victory gained in Christ here in this moment. We're going to see what you and I, what mankind was incapable of doing in every moment, what you and I are going to see is the victory of Christ. But also, it's not just about the divine and what Jesus is able to do in his nature as God, but let's understand the humanity of Christ also here in this moment. Right, we just got done celebrating that in the Christmas season, right? The miracle of Christmas that God is, is with us and God is not with us in this moment of what we see in scripture as like this hovering cloud, right? Above humanity. God is not just as this spirit sweeping through the, the, the world in this, but, but, but God, the, the, the miracle of, of Christmas, right? Is that God takes on the form and the flesh of, of man in the form of a baby grows up into being this man who goes into the desert. And so you and I, we can't just think of Jesus in his divinity, but we also have to think of Jesus, and especially in this moment, in his humanity. Because Jesus is being led in a moment of him being vulnerable into the desert for a period of time. For The Bible tells us for 40 days he's in the desert. Now, I don't know about you, but, but, but imagine being in the desert for 40 days, right? Like after camping for 48 hours, I'm tired and need a shower and a bed, right? And Jesus goes for 40 days into the desert where during the day he'll experience excruciating amounts of heat and at night he'll experience cold. We see that a time is set for him, that, that in his humanity, this isn't just like a moment that happens, right? For God, there is no time. But for Jesus, in his humanity, there is 40 days in the desert, the ultimate survival. And not only that, while he is there in the desert, he's fasting. So I want you to imagine what it's like not to, not to miss a meal, not to miss a day of meals, 
but 40 days in those extreme conditions, and this is where we find him. He's tired, he's hungry, and he's vulnerable. But in this, what we'll see is his victory. And what you and I can see that the temptations that, the, that Satan fires at Christ are the same temptations that he fires at you and I in order to pull us away from the mission of God. And so as we see Christ's victory in those, we can know that he's gained that victory for us and how we can apply that same victory in our life. So let's continue. Look, verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The first temptation that we see here in the desert is the temptation of trust. The temptation of trust. Now, you read this. Let's look again at what the devil said to him. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Well, I want to ask you a question. What's the big deal with that? Right? Like, what's the big deal? Like, how is this a temptation? It, you know, it, it's not sinful for Jesus to eat. We'll, we'll see in, in, in stories where, where Jesus goes to, to people's houses that he's calling to follow him. And do you know what he does there? He eats. At the Last Supper, what we just observed here on, on Christmas Eve together is partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Guess what they had just got done doing? They just got done eating. So it's not sinful. The temptation of itself is not that Jesus would eat because in his humanity, right, he would, he would have to. It, it's not sinful for Jesus to perform a miracle involving food, specifically bread. We'll see two times in Scripture where Jesus will feed the masses of people that have come to hear him and his closest followers and food left over with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. Jesus is able to take those and multiply those. And so what we see in Scripture is it's not wrong for, for Jesus to eat. It's not wrong for Jesus to perform miracles to provide, and I would be willing to bet in those future instances where Jesus multiplied that he himself partook in those meals. So what is happening here? Why is this such a big deal that Satan comes to Jesus and he says to him, hey, here's the first temptation, buddy. See if you can pass this. Turn these rocks into bread. What Satan is doing here is he's attacking Jesus's trust in God. Right? Remember from where we began. How did Jesus get to the desert? God led him there. How did Jesus find himself in the condition that he found himself in? Experiencing hunger. God called him to it. So for Satan, it's not about the miracle. It's not about the food. For Jesus, it's beyond that. It's showing who he trusts. Jesus took on flesh, and in doing so, took on limitations. Jesus would get tired. Jesus would get hungry. Jesus would get thirsty. This would mark him. If Jesus cut his hand, it hurt. 
This is the experience that he would go through. He took on the limitations, and we see all those as Jesus experiences his humanity. So what Satan is calling him is, is in Jesus, are you going to follow the leading of the Spirit? Or Jesus, are you going to follow the leading of the flesh? This is what we see in the very first temptation of Christ. And in that, who are you going to trust? And so Jesus responds to him, and he quotes scripture found in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It says this, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Satan challenges him, are you going to trust God? And Jesus, in his saying yes, says, and here's why. Here's why I trust God. Here's what's happening in, in Deuteronomy 8. In this passage of scripture, God tells Israel that he was the one to cause them to be in the desert. That God is the one who caused them to hunger in the desert. But that also God is the one who provided for them in the desert. And how did God provide for them? Ultimately, God provided them by every word that comes from the mouth of God. To trust God means to cling to who God is. Can they trust him? Jesus says you trust him because you know him. You trust him because you know his word. Here's what I wanna ask you this morning. Do you trust God? In the moments when we're going through this life and we're making one of two choices, do I lean in and press forward by the flesh and what my flesh wants and what my flesh desires? I can imagine being Christ and being there in that moment and feeling the emptiness of your stomach and having the ability and the means to do what is being laid before you. But instead of choosing what the flesh wanted, Jesus stood and took the step and chose what the Spirit was calling him to. And so do you trust God? God's word says we, we know him, and when we know him, we develop our trust in him. And that when we know his word, we grow in it. That we grow in our trust. You see, it's not just about knowing about Jesus, but it's about a know, knowing him and then consuming more and becoming more filled with his presence. So Satan failed in attempt number one. So he goes for attempt number two, starting verse five. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here's what we see in this moment. Satan attacks Jesus. He tempts Jesus with a call to surrender. Now, I don't know why. 
I'm not, I'm not God, and I don't understand or, or know everything about God, but what God has done in God's will and God's plan is in this moment of time, in this span of history, he has released the devil to do work, and he's allowed him to have powers. And so the things that Satan is claiming here in this moment are the things that he can do. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, in a brief moment of time, so you, you see this, this, this supernatural event takes place, that in a moment of time that he's able to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to Jesus, you can have all of them. That right has been given to me. But in order for you to have them, you must worship me. Now here's what's happening. God's already promised all of this to Christ. God's promised Christ not the kingdoms of the world, but he's promised him the kingdom. As Jesus has began to preach and what we'll see early on in his ministry, that he's come to proclaim the kingdom of God that he will rightly rule over. And so Satan comes, though, and doesn't promise him the kingdom, but he promises the kingdoms of what he can give him if only he'll bow down and worship him. So what is Satan offering Jesus? If he can give him the kingdoms, but God has for him the kingdom, what is he offering him? You see, Satan is offering him the kingdom without the cross, that when Christ, to take the throne that God has promised him, that it happens through the work that he will do on the cross. And so what Satan is offering him in this moment is surrender to me without fulfilling what God has called you to do. And so Jesus responds once again by, by looking into Scripture, by looking back at Deuteronomy, and he says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You see, what Jesus points him toward, what Jesus reminds us of, is that you surrender to who you worship. Satan says, worship me, and I'll give you this. And Jesus says, no, because surrender is found in the plan that God has for us. You see, you surrender to who you worship. You surrender to who you serve. So I want to ask you this. You know, we look at this temptation and we think it's about who we worship. But if we find ourselves in, in the midst of living in a religious mindset and we say, who do you worship? Well, you're here today. So you worship God, you worship Christ. Those are the answers that we've been taught. That's what we've, what we've become known to be able to say. So I want to ask it in a different way in this moment. Not who do you worship, but who have you surrendered to? Who have you laid your life down for? Who are you called to follow? You see, Satan wanted Jesus to follow him. And in order to do that, then you didn't have to worry about the cross. I think about later in Jesus' ministry, and there's a group of people who, who they want to follow after him. And the same means by which Jesus is going to surrender to God, he calls them to. He says, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, there's something that we need to do. You need to take up your cross, and you need to follow me. The surrender to God in our lives. So many times in 
Christianity. We want to sell this false, weak, watered-down version. You see, the ease of Christ could have gained everything this world had to offer. All he had to do was walk away from the cross. All he had to do was walk away from his suffering. All he had to do was walk away from the difficulty. But he chose it instead. And for us, within our life, we can gain and pursue all the things of the world. You know, an interesting thing happens is the kingdom of God is fully established here on the earth. As nations are no longer nation, but there's truly, truly one nation under God. What will happen is the plurality of kingdoms and nations will no longer exist, and there'll be one for him, the kingdom that happens through the work of the cross and the battle through it. And for us, it's where we find ourselves in the surrender and being willing to go into the battle, being willing to take up our cross and follow him, that it is not found in anything else other than in our surrender to God. And so Satan fails yet again. Two times he's failed. So he comes back for a third. Verse 9 says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Like, Can you hear the challenge? Jesus, if you are the son of God, prove it. Do this. And here's how it will prove it. Verse 10, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Temptation number three, obedience. Obedience. So the devil takes Jesus on top of the temple. 330 feet up into the air. And he tells him, if you're the son of God, show it. If you're the son of God, prove it. Because here's what will happen if you're the son of God. And he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. That if you throw yourself down, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan says, all right, you've been quoting scripture. Let me quote scripture. Prove it. Show it. I'm going to make you put him to test. Satan looks at Jesus and he says, here's the temptation that you must face. Here's the temptation that you must pass. You tell God what you're going to do and that God needs to play on your terms, not his. Jesus Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do that. Jesus doesn't just say, I don't have to prove to you who I am, that what's going to be seen is on the cross. Jesus again goes back to Deuteronomy. Back to Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. As you tested him at Massa, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. So in Deuteronomy 6, there's this reference of, hey, you as humanity, you and I, we don't have the right to test God. 
We don't have the right to call God on our authority. Instead, here's what we have the right to do because he's God. We've got the right to keep the commandments. We've got the right to obey him. And so Jesus says to Satan, no, 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 no. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. He doesn't have to do what I tell him to do. In this, the son has surrendered to the father and I'm just going to obey him. Here's what happened at, at Massa. In Exodus chapter 17 is where the story of Massa takes place. And God's people are finding themselves, the Israelites, kind of being like God's people. If you've read the story or you know the story of Exodus, here's what they've experienced up until this point. They've been held captive. They've been bound. They find themselves in slavery to the Egyptians. And God hears their cries. They cry out to him. And he's going to set his people free through the earthly leadership of Moses of how God's going to work in that moment. And so God sends plagues. He sends the, the Passover to where they will be set free and the Egyptians will feel the weight and the wrath of God. But because of their obedience to God, they won't experience the wrath. And so in and through that, they experience this. And the Egyptian, the, the Pharaoh, he, he sets them free. And so what God's people have experienced is being set free by simply not anything they've done, but by the work of God. And then as God set them free, even in their freedom, death awaited them and death pursued them in the form of the Egyptian army. And they get to a point, God's people, as they flee from them, where they come and they find themselves on the shores of the Red Sea. And behind them, the, the army is attacking. And the only way to be saved is for God to save them. And so God commands Moses. Moses holds up his rod and the waters of the Red Sea part. And the scripture tells us, and this is remarkable, I, I tell this every single time, that it says that God's people, right, that they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. I want you to do something. The next time you go to the ocean, all right, I want you to go out at low tide. And I want you to walk out where the water once was and tell me if it's dry. It never is. You see, people have tried to, to naturally explain how this could have happened, but what you can't explain, you can explain a low tide, right? You cannot explain dry ground, but God's people crossed on dry ground. And as they crossed, the Egyptian army pursued after them. And so they went in the same path where God's people were. And the moment the last Israelite stepped foot off of the Red Sea onto the fully dry ground of what was there, and the moment that the full Egyptian army was in there, that the waters closed in on them. And so God saved them. But now they're in the desert, and they're wandering, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty. So what does God do? God doesn't provide them berries in a, in a field that they find somewhere. God instead causes bread to fall down from heaven so that they can eat. That when their thirst is beginning to consume them, God provides them water and God doesn't provide them water by leading them to a stream or to a brook where they can find water to drink. Instead, God causes water to come out of a stone. And so God's people are there at Massa. And in spite of all of these things happening, 
their complaint to him was, God, did you bring us here to kill us? God, if you didn't, then do these things on our account. What they wanted God to do was they wanted God to respond to their authority, to test him to see if he would do what they wanted him to do. And what Jesus says is in response to God's authority of who we are, what do we do? How do we respond to him? We don't test him. We obey him. We obey him. And so Jesus says, I I know what God's word says, but I'm not to test him. I'm simply to live my life in obedience. I want to ask you this question, and this is a question, I want to be honest with you, that I've really had to wrestle with for myself this week. Not in the theology of what I believe, but what I heard a pastor call practical theology. You see, theology is what we believe, practical theology is what we actually do. And there's a difference a lot of times for us, right? There are things that I believe, but how that practically plays out in my life sometimes looks different. And and here's what I've had to wrestle with, is this, Whose authority do you cling to? Do you think that God is here to obey you? Or are you here to obey God? I want to be honest with you. So many times, the selfishness of my heart, the selfishness of my prayers, I can find myself in God. If you love me, do this for me. God, if you love me, remove this from me. God, if you love me, take this away from me. And in that, and in my sin, what I find is that I'm trying to make God obey me and not me obey God. But Jesus once again, is the victor. And the devil leaves, and Jesus is restored. And here's how we should probably think logic should play out. Christ is overcame. He's the victor. Good things happen, right, when you do good things. That's where our minds have been taught. That's what we feel like the narrative of the story should be. And so if you continue on reading in in chapter 4, there are good things that happen. Chapter 4 talks about that, that Jesus has a, has a crowd that begins to, to follow him. He has opportunities where, where he begins to teach, and, and people like what he, what he says in, in some instances. And Jesus has opportunities to heal people, to provide life and, and hope. And if we put the period right there at, at chapter 4, and this is what this is about, then this is, this is the great victory. This is the story that we can cling to, right? Jesus did all the things that he would do, and it all turned out good. And yay, let's wait and see what happens in chapter 5. But also woven into the fabric of the story of chapter 4 is not only does Jesus draw a crowd, but he's rejected, Not only do some people like what he says, but others hate it. He's mocked, even to the point where his life is put in danger. But even though, even though in the wilderness he trusted and he surrendered 
and he obeyed. He still finds himself in the midst of the struggle, even when he's surrounded by others. So what does he do for the remainder of his time to the point that we see him, even to the point of death on the cross? He trusts, he surrenders, and he obeys. I don't know if you have any goals for this upcoming year. Right, we have to, to talk about the things that we want to we be known for, that we want to see that, that happen and take place in our life. And for a lot of us, we, we talk about, I want to I be more like Christ. I want to love more like Christ. I want to look more like Christ. I want Christ to mark more of my life. But what does that mean? And what I would argue is we don't have to look past the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness to look at what Jesus did and how he overcame. He trusted, he surrendered, and he obeyed. Would you pray with me? God, I come to you this morning thanking you for the victory that we've been able to see. Lord, you, you led, Jesus was led into the, to the wilderness and in his humanity, he struggled, but in his divinity, he gained the victory. God, I pray for us as we look at this year of what's ahead, as we look at our tomorrow and our week, as we look at the battles that are in our life, Lord, we know that you have not left us or forsaken us. Lord, we might be in a place where we feel like hope doesn't exist. Lord, where the struggle is there. But Lord, I pray that through it all, what we would experience is trusting you, surrendering to you, and obeying you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Whether you're watching at home or you're, or you're here with us on campus. We look at what it means to follow Christ. I think sometimes we, we, we complicate it. And I think we see in here, through the modeling of Jesus, the process of faith. So I want to ask you this morning, have you trusted Christ with your life, with your marriage, with your kids, with your health? With every aspect, have you trusted him? Have you trusted him for your eternity? That heaven is not going to be obtained by works, but it's going to be a gift received through grace of Christ. Have you trusted him? Have you surrendered to him? And the mark of surrender to bow down 
Say, my life is yours. Do with me as you please. Have all that is me. And use it for your name and for your glory. And are you pushing for obedience in him? Understanding that every day is a day of growth. But understanding that every failure that you commit is met with grace and forgiveness and kindness and compassion. But every day, looking for an opportunity to be obedient to him. I think that's what it means to follow Jesus. To live in victory in spite of the wilderness of the desert that we find ourselves in. God, as we conclude this worship service here in a moment, we're going to respond in song. Lord, I pray for the response of hearts to you. For some of us, maybe it's beginning a relationship with you. Salvation found in you and you alone. For some of us, maybe it's growing in trust, growing in surrender, growing in obedience. But Lord, I pray in the spirit of God that we will not leave here in the way that we enter. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we respond to him? Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.